Parshas Korach, at someone's table. Everybody knows that when Korach approached Moshe Rabbeinu to stake out his claim, he didn't do it alone. He wasn't the only one involved in the deadly quarrel. And Korach gathered Dasan and Aviram and On Ben Peles, and they stood defiantly before Moshe. And with them were 250 important men from Bnei Yisroel. Korach. It means that Korach was successful in gathering to his side a considerable number of people who were willing to face off with Moshe Rabbeinu. And they weren't little people, rabble-rousers who are easily persuaded to rebel against the leaders. They were the Nisei Eida, the men who were elevated over the congregation. And Anshe Shem, men, distinguished with a good name. And yet it was these important people who were persuaded by Korach to join him in his rebellion. And eventually, they joined him in Gehenim too. They went lost with Korach. Now there's a big question here. Why would these 250 people join Korach? We're talking now about the wisest of men who surely knew that there was nothing to gain by attaching themselves to Korach and challenging Moshe, the one chosen by Hashem to lead the nation. And therefore, it seems strange that such wise people would join in a rebellion that was doomed to end in disaster. It's a big question. How were there such great men persuaded to join a losing battle? Now pay attention to how it happened. There's a mysterious Pasuk in Tehillim that states as follows. With flattery and mockery of cakes, he ground his teeth against me. It's a queer Pasuk, and we don't know what it means. So we look into the Gemara in Sanhedrin, and we see that this Pasuk is talking about our Parsha. It's answering our question. Reish Lakish taught. My dechsiv, what's meant by the flattery and mockery of eating cakes? And he explains it as follows. Because Korach's guests flattered him when he gave them things to eat and to drink. The chief of Gehenna gnashed his teeth against them. It means like this. Korach arranged banquets for his friends and his neighbors. He was a wealthy man and he found occasions to make celebrations. All kind of repasts he made. So does mitzvahs too. And he invited people to eat at his table. And it was at these feasts, when his guests were seated at his table, eating and drinking, that's when their host brought up the subject of a certain person whom he didn't like, Moshe ben Amram. Now, there was no reason to dislike Moshe Rabbeinu. He was a very likable person. What's there to dislike about Moshe? But Korach had his reasons. And in order to persuade his guests, he made sure to bring up the subject while they were partaking of his pastries and of his wine. As they were sitting at his table eating, he said something to ridicule the one who he considered his nemesis, Moshe Rabbeinu. You know, if you're a Shabbos guest at somebody's house and he says a piece of Torah, so you have to admire his words of wisdom no matter how much wisdom they're lacking. You're eating his challah and his chulant. So when your host will say some remark on the sedra, you admire it. Ooh, ah, that's so nice. Now the truth is that had you heard it from someone else, you would have perhaps said, that's no good. How do you know that's true? But at your host's table, it's good. It's very good. And what do you do when your host brings up a joke? You laugh. If you are a Shabbos guest at somebody's table and the master of the house says a joke, all the guests have to laugh. Now, had you been on the street 
if you weren't eating at the table, and he would make a joke, it would fall flat on you. You might even criticize the joke. But he's the host now, so it's different. Isn't that the truth? That's how it is when you're a guest. When you sit at a man's table, you're in his hands. You're eating from his food, so you're enslaved to him. Now the truth is that to a certain extent, that's how guests should behave. He has to demonstrate a certain appreciation. It's not good manners for a guest to tell the balabais, your peshat in the chumish doesn't make sense. Are you going to make a quarrel with your host at the table? When he sings the miras and his voice is a little bit rusty and his tune is monotonous, are you going to tell him, you're off tune? What do you think you are? A Caruso? A Yoisela Rosenblatt? That's no way to talk to your host. You admire his Zemiris no matter how poor a singer he is because you're his guest. Everything is beautiful to you. You can't say what you really think. He's the host. And so whatever he says goes. So as you're both sipping the scotch and you're saying L'chaim, he's palming off on you his old Torah jokes that he said for all the other guests before you. He holds out the moth-eaten ideas that he'd been saying for a long time. And you're a slave. You're nodding your head. Yes, 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 yes. What can you do? You're eating from his hand. And so you consent and you approve. Along with his scotch, you imbibe his ideas too. Now that's a big problem. Because what happens when you see that your host is slipping in Lush and Hara? It happens sometimes that you're sitting at a table, you're a guest, and the host is criticizing, let's say, the Rabbanim, or the Roshi Yeshivas. He's criticizing Satmar, or he's criticizing Lubavitcher, and you're in a very tight place now. You're in a terrible bind now. The man is feeding you lush and horror now, and you're a helpless prisoner. You have to become tongue-tied. You have to watch yourself. You cannot agree with him. You shouldn't even look into his face. Because when you look in his face, as he opens his big mouth against the Sadmararav, it's like you're saying, yes, yes, go on. The truth is that even if you keep quiet, you're encouraging him. Because if you weren't sitting there, if he didn't have the audience, he wouldn't talk. And not only are you in danger of encouraging him, but because you're his guest, his words begin to settle into your heart. Because of the cakes he's feeding you, you flatter him and his mocking words. And the ideas begin to percolate in your mind. So if you could excuse yourself and go to the bathroom for an extended stay until the time comes to bench, that's the best thing to do. If necessary, you can say, oh, I forgot. I left the water running in my apartment. Excuse me, a flood. And you run home and forget to come back. It's an emergency. You're stuck. And don't think... It's an extreme act to run out. If you don't have the presence of mind to think of something better, just run out. Period. That's all. So he'll say you're crazy. He'll never invite you again. But you saved your life. The Gemara says, Mutav liyot kol yamav. Better to be considered a lunatic all your life. In the eyes of human beings, Ve'al yerosha sha'achas you shouldn't be considered in the eyes of Hashem Arasha, even once. And the Gemara is telling us that that's how Korach persuaded his guests. That's how they ended up in Gehenna with him. Because when Korach opened his big mouth to speak against Moshe, they were sitting at his table, and so they kept quiet. Some of them even nodded their heads, yes. 
That's how it is when you're a guest. They were nodding their heads. Yes, yes. What else could they do? A guest at someone's table can't be rude. Bechanfei. They were flattering their host, La'age, so they also ridiculed the one who the host wanted them to ridicule, Ma'og, because they were eating his pastries, his ugos. There's a certain amount of flattery that the guest paid to his host, and that's what happened to Korach's guests. He used his table to suffocate the opinions of others and persuaded them to come to his side in the Machlekes against Moshe and Aaron. At that time, it says, Charok alai shinemo. He gritted his teeth against me. Who gritted his teeth? So the Gemara says, Charak Alehem Sal Shel Gehenim Shinov. The master of Gehenim. It means the one who is in charge of Gehenim. Ground his teeth against them in anger. He was preparing now to have these people as his future guests. Aha, he said. Now you're mine. Because they ate cakes with Korach. The end was that when the earth opened up and swallowed Korach, they were destroyed. They were lost too. So what do we learn from this? That when people eat at somebody's table, they have to be on guard because it's very easy to fall into a trap. When someone is feeding you, that's the time you're most susceptible to persuasion. The Gemara in Chulin says that. Ein hasata ushtia. The only real persuasion is the persuasion done with food and drink. And the Gemara there proves it from Pasukim. It's like the world says. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Only that the Gemara there demonstrates from Pesukim that it's true. It's a Torah principle. You married women should listen to this as well. Girls too. You'll be married one day, so listen to a good piece of advice from the Gemara. If you want to ask your husband that he should buy you something that you have your heart set on, don't do it before supper. That's a very serious error. Don't jump the gun. Even worse is before breakfast. That's terrible. You're hearing something that's very valuable. Never bring up any subject that you have to discuss before breakfast. The best time is after supper. Ein hasata ella To persuade, you need eating and drinking. Parents who understand this will know to utilize the time that the children are in their home in order to influence them. While you're feeding your little boy and your little girl at the table, that's the best time to teach them the Yesodes Hamuna. When children are eating at your table, that's the opportunity for you to mold them and to make something great out of them. Even when you have a big son and daughter still living in your house, you can still teach them all the elements of life because they're still eating from your table. They're not so independent yet, so you can utilize that to teach them how to behave. The truth is that you're giving them a lot of future happiness by conferring this instruction upon them. And if you do it at a time when they're more willing to listen by means of the persuasion of food, that's when you'll see the most success. And just because of that, just because the only real persuasion is the persuasion done with food and drink, that's why it's also the most dangerous of times. That's one of the lessons the Am Yisrael learned from the episode with Korach. Beware of the persuasion and flattery brought on by eating the food of your host. The Yetzir Hara, the Sar Shel Gehenim, is waiting to put you into his net because now you're an easy prey. Your discretion is not as operative. Your free will doesn't function so well when you're eating at somebody's table. And the Sar Shel Gehenim is waiting to see what you're going to do. 
If you sit back and allow the words of the host to enter your mind along with his food, the Sar Shel Gehenim will begin to grind his teeth against you, and that means you're looking for a lot of trouble. Now this subject is more serious than we think. Eating at somebody's table is not just a danger that you might do this or that, that you might nod your head when your host sings off tune or when he says something improper about a guddle. The truth is, that's already a big enough danger to be very afraid of. Sometimes with one little nod of the head, you can acquire for yourself a whole lot of Gehenim. But we're going to see now how big the subject really is. It's actually a matter of life and death. The Gemara in Beitza tells us that Shlosha Chayehen Einam Chayim. There are three kinds of people whose lives are not lives. They're breathing, they're walking and talking, but it's all a facade. In a certain sense, they're not living anymore. The first one is Mi Sheishto Mosheles Alav, someone whose wife rules over him. Here's a man who can't make a move without his wife's permission. She's Oymed Al-Gabov. It means she stands over him to see what he's doing. She knows everything about his finances. When they make an appeal in the shul for an important cause, he can't participate because the boss didn't give him permission. He's a slave to his wife. That's not a life. The second on the list is a man who's Yisurim Moishlin Alav, a man who is subjected to great suffering. He is suffering so much that his pain rules over him. He can't go where he wants to go, and he can't do what he wants to do, because he's in pain all the time. He's not able to learn properly or daven properly. It's a great pity on him, because he is a slave to his suffering. His life is not a life. And the third is what we're talking about now. Someone who looks forward to the table of other people. It means he's always dependent on others for his meals. Now this man doesn't have a wife who gives him orders, and he's not suffering Yisurim either. Life is wonderful. He's eating well, and he's not even paying money for the food. He's eating at someone else's table. And yet Chazal are telling us that he's a dead man. Now, we have to understand, if these three are bunched together, there must be a common denominator in all three of them. What is it that makes these three people have lives that are not really lives? To answer that question, we have to first understand what does it mean to live? What are we here in this world for? Now I know you'll tell me Torah and mitzvahs, chesed too, and that's true. But those are the details. I'm talking about encapsulating it into one word. What are we here for? And the answer is, Bechira. Free will. That's the only thing we can really get out of this world. The gift to do according to the dictates of our own seichel. That's true life. And it's more valuable than anything else we possess. It's a gem that cannot be equaled. You can't find it in the best jewelry shops. Bechira is the rarest gift in creation. And that's what we live for. To be free to choose. Now when we talk about freedom in America, we're just aping words. We don't understand what it means. When that man got up and declared, give me liberty or give me death, he was following a true instinct. There's an instinct that if you're not free, it doesn't pay to live. Only that he didn't understand it. In America, they think that freedom by itself, freedom without any purpose, is an ideal. To be free to do whatever we want. A mishugas. 
Freedom is only valuable because you're free to choose to be an Eved Hashem. You have the freedom to create a Torah mind. You should choose life. The purpose of life is to exercise our free will. That's what we're here in this world for. To make use of this great gift and spend our days, our minutes, choosing between good and not good, and between good and better. We'll only have this gem for a short time, 90 years, 100 years, even if you live to 120. After you leave this life, you'll be for millions of years in Gan Eden. You'll be rewarded with a happy existence, and every kind of pleasure will be afforded to you. But free will, you won't have. And you'll miss it. You'll regret that you can't choose to do good once you pass out of this life. Now, what that means is that anything that's going to interfere with your free will in this world, anything that will shackle you, is the greatest danger because it makes you lose that precious gift that you only have now while you're alive. A wife who won't let you serve Hashem. She drags you to every simcha so you can't learn at night. She wants you to work overtime so you can buy luxurious carpets and you can't mail out a check to the yeshiva unless she signs the check so you're not alive anymore. And if a person is suffering, you suit him. He is a fettered man. He's in chains because he can't activate his free will as he wishes. Anything that limits your free will, it's like limiting your life. And the same as if you're eating at someone else's table. It means that you're accepting benefits from somebody. And so you're no longer free to choose. You're shackled to your host. And if your Bechira is shackled, it's the same as being dead. He's not actually dead because a lot of things he can still do. He can still daven a good mincha and mariv. He can do a lot of good things, even learn Torah. But he's not a free agent anymore. He's already given away his gem of Bechira because the food and drink is enslaving his mind. He cannot say other than what his host wants him to say. And eventually the ideals of his host become his ideals too. Even when he's not in his host's home, he cannot think independently anymore. And don't tell me any stories that you can be a taker and still be free. It's false. It's all excuses and alibis. Once you take, you're sold out. You're enslaved to the giver. You're not the same. We see it all the time. Young rabbis leave the yeshiva full of idealism and they go to places where the congregation is made up of materialistic people. Oilam hazetika people. And after a while, the rabbi becomes the same as them. How does it happen that the rabbi now has the same mentality as the sisterhood? Don't tell me it's the environment. Of course it is. But it's more than that. It's because he's eating from the table of the sisterhood. They're the ones who come in every year and make a motion to give him a raise. The sisterhood have a say in how much to pay the rabbi. And so he becomes enslaved to them. When a congregation gives a big salary to the rabbi, you have to know that no matter how from he is, no matter how honest and idealistic he is, he's no longer the same. Every raise that they give him makes him become lower and lower. And when the president of the sisterhood comes, let's say, and brings him a gift, a trip to Israel. So he's sold out. He's an abject slave. He's shackled in the heaviest chains and his mind cannot rise above the level of his new Rebbe. Instead of being a slave to his old Rosh Hashiva, where he learned as a Talmud, now he's enslaved to an old lady.
And the end is that he loses his free will and whatever he says thenceforth is only platitudes because nobody is going to be ungrateful enough. Nobody will be mean enough to attack the people that are good to him. It's impossible. He would have spoken with vehemence against the things they're doing wrong. He would speak with venom against those who need to be spoken against. But now he's not free anymore. He won't open his mouth because he sold his Bechira for a pot of lentils. And anybody who thinks that he can be an exception is Eino Ella Toye. He's nothing but an error. He's fettered and shackled to the ideals of those who are feeding him. Unless he goes out of the yeshiva at an advanced age, he learned in a koilel and he has a wife and children already. He grew up in Shas and Musser and now he's in his 30s. Now he's more fortified. He's hardened and stubborn. Maybe he'll be able to avoid the pitfalls. Maybe he'll continue to live. Maybe he'll continue to choose life. Not only rabbis, everyone is susceptible. When a Jewish magazine accepts ads from the United Jewish Appeal or some other non-Torah organizations, so even though they have pictures of Sadiqim on the cover and articles of Yiddish Shamayim plastered all over the inside, you have to know that it's not the same. They're already slaves. It's not a Torah magazine because they are pulling punches. There are a lot of things that they're not saying anymore. No matter how good they are, no matter how all the good intentions they have, they're sold out already to the table that they're eating at. And that's what happened to Korach's people. They were good people, but once they enjoyed Korach's cakes, they were shackled to Korach's ideals. They could no longer see the greatness of Moshe because when they were sitting and eating pastries, so there was Hanifa, there was flattery, and there was also mockery, jesting. Now this brings us to a story. The Gemara and Kedushin tells about an empty lot that stood in the middle of a town and was never used. It was a good piece of real estate. It was arable and capable of cultivation, but it was a queer thing. Nobody ever used it. And that lot had a name. It was called Ara de Rabbanon, the piece of land that belonged to the rabbis. That's how it was known. Now, what does it mean? The land of the rabbis? There's a story behind it, and here's what happened. There was a certain sage who had purchased a lot that he needed, but a little while after he bought it, somebody complained to him, how could you buy this piece of land? It's not right. There was another sage, a poor man, who was trying to buy it. He was negotiating with the owner, and you snatched it right from under his nose. Now, when the first sage discovered that the second sage had already been negotiating and wanted to buy it, he was distressed. And as soon as he heard, he went over to the poor sage and he said, If that's the case, take it. I'm giving it to you. I want to give you the field as a gift. But the second sage said, A gift? I don't take any gifts. He refused to take it. It went back and forth. The sage who bought the field refused to use it because it was a case of a poor man that negotiated for it. So he felt it was wrong for him to take it. But the poor man refused to take it. He didn't want any gifts. So this one didn't take it and this one didn't take it. They both retired to their corners and nobody used it. It remained bare and uncultivated for generations. A remarkable thing. The field remained unused for generations. It was a big plot of land that stood empty in the middle of the town like a monument. People called it Ara 
Dirabanan, the land of the two rabbis. And they always used to talk about the story of the two Rabbanan, who had an argument about who should take the field. It's an argument you don't find today. Now this story needs commentary, which will not be forthcoming now, but one point that's important for us to know. The poor sage refused to accept gifts. The question is, why? The first sage said, I'm not going to use it anyhow. Just take it, please. But he wouldn't take it. It's a question. What's so wrong with taking a gift? So we look in the Gemara and study the words of the Chacham. He said like this, Lo nichalach dechaye. You don't want me to live? You want me to take a gift? Are you trying to kill me? And he quoted the following pasuk in Mishlei. Sayne matanos yichye. He who hates gifts is going to live. A good piece of advice from Shlomo HaMelech. You want to live? Then hate gifts. That's what Mishlei is telling us. He who hates gifts is going to live. Now, if you are about to become Bar Mitzvah, or you're getting married soon, it may be a little bit difficult for you to hear this. So we'll say an excuse that in a case like that, it's not really a gift. The giver is paying a debt because your family gave gifts to them at their simchas. So they're paying back. It's like a debt. So we have some justification, some excuse. But whatever it is, it's an excuse. Because there's a very big principle we're learning here. What is it? It's what we said before. That life means the opportunity of Bechira. The precious gem of being an independent person. Who can choose between good and bad. And the fact is, that once you accept a gift, you're sold out to the giver. You're giving away your life. And such an important principle deserves to be memorialized with a monument. And that's what happened. The empty lot remained a monument to this episode. For generations and generations, people would speak about the land of the rabbis. Children used to ask, what's going on with this piece of land? And the fathers used to tell them the story. That's not Stam, an empty lot. They told their children, it's a monument to the sage who didn't want to give away his life By taking gifts. Everybody was told the story about how one sage who wanted to give a gift to another sage, but he wouldn't accept it because he didn't want to be indebted and lose even a little bit of his Bechira. A gem like that, you don't give up so easily. That's how it was in the olden days. Mothers and fathers didn't tell their children meaningless stories about talking mice, about Goldilocks and bears. They told stories about Aradirabonon, and everyone learned the lesson of that anyone who is a taker is in danger of losing his independence. He's giving up his free will, which means he's giving up life. Now we won't say that you can never eat at someone else's table. If it's up to me, there are many tzaddikim who I would gladly eat in their homes because I'd become slaves to them. What's better than that? What's the purpose of having freedom of mind in order to get the right type of mind? So if you take your freedom of mind and use your Bechira to enslave it to a greater mind, a holy Torah mind, that's the best thing. So for us, it's no question. Let's say Rav Aaron Cudler invites you to his house. He says, on Shabbos, come eat at my table. So forget about what you heard tonight and say, gladly, Rabbi, because you'll become enslaved to the best. You'll sit at his table and whatever he says, you'll say, yes. It's good. You could be sure it's good. And you'll be swallowing down all of the best attitudes of the mind. But meanwhile, we're not eating by the table of Sadiqim. We're at the Shulchan Acherim.
at the table of others. And we're taking and taking. And that means we're giving up our minds to others. We're not guarding the precious gem of free will. And this brings us to the very sad subject of being a guest at the table of Gentiles. Because an exile means that we're soymech al shulchan acherim. We're eating at the table of others. Now before we begin, I want to clear the decks for action. I want to make one thing clear. Exile doesn't mean only America. Exile means Medina's Yisrael too. And don't make any mistake about that. Geography doesn't make any difference. Tel Aviv is just the same as Paris and New York. In New York, you're eating in the home of Mayor Koch and Governor Cuomo. And in Tel Aviv, you're eating in the home of the Zionists, the Marxists. And that's just as bad as anybody else. The truth is, it's worse. Wherever we are, we are the guests and they are the hosts. And even though you might never think of going into the home of your Italian neighbor to sit down and eat supper with him, we're actually sitting at the table of the Gentiles. They give us a place to be. They give us freedom, other benefits too. We make our livelihood among the nations. They're your clients and your patients and your customers. And that means we rely on them. We're benefiting in many ways from them. They drive the buses. They take our children to the yeshiva. We're taking from them gov- government benefits, public services, other things too. We're protected by the law. There are police will come to our aid if we call them. A Gentile policeman will come in his car with a siren and he'll take up for you. Even if the police don't do anything, at least they're present on the street to frighten some people from doing crimes. We gain from that. If Khalila, there's a fire. So who's coming to save your life? It's the Italian firefighters who come. The Italian is the one who might revive you. They come in their big trucks and they might even pull someone out of a burning building and revive him with mouth-to-mouth breathing. And that means there's a certain affection you have for them. A kiruv hadas. It's impossible any other way. I remember once when an Irish policeman came to help me out. There was a man, a neighbor of ours, who had a dog and he let it run wild and once the dog bit me. So I called up the police station to make a complaint and the owner of the dog was standing there cursing me. A big, tall Irish cop came and stood up for me. He told the man to keep quiet. Close your mouth, he said. And he wrote down his name and address and told him he has to report to the health department with the dog. At that moment, I felt that this Irish man is my protector. To a certain extent, I was sold out to him. We're eating from the table of the Gentiles, and so we're sold out to them. Because of all the benefits we get from their table, we begin to swallow their ideals as well. And there's nothing more dangerous than selling out your mind to a Gentile. Now don't go out of here and tell people that Rabbi Miller is not a loyal citizen. Far from it. Absolutely, we're loyal to the country we live in. Bira the Shasis Mini. If you drink from a well, don't throw dirt into it. Bavakama, a well from which you drank. Don't spit into it. Just the opposite. You have to do what you can to preserve it. That's the principle of the Gemara. You must show gratitude even to an inanimate object. And so certainly we have to be loyal and grateful to America. 
Shouldn't you be loyal to the one who gave you a roof over your head and a place to stay dry? Absolutely. After all, America is a good country. We came from countries where we were persecuted, and this country gave us all the rights. When the immigrant Jews came to America, they were overjoyed. They kissed the earth in happiness. Not only those who came as a result of Hitler, but even those who came earlier from Tsarist Russia and other European countries. They came to a land of equal opportunity. And they were amazed at the friendliness here. I was in Europe for some time when I was to study in the yeshiva in Slobodka. And when I came back, I saw even more than this was a blessed country. It's a gift from Hashem to us. That's why I say that a Jew should hang out the flag on the 4th of July. I won't say you're a sinner if you don't, but I think it's a good thing to hang out that flag today. It's not only a contradiction to being a from Jew. By any means, it's not a Goisha thing. Walk down Ocean Parkway this week. No flags on this side. No flags on that side. But here, we hang out the flag on the 4th of July. The flag is a symbol of all the privileges that our Kaddish Baruch Hu is giving us in this country. And therefore, it's not a bad idea, even if you never did it before, to hang a flag on the 4th of July. Let me tell you something. 50 years ago, I wouldn't have spoken about that. I have been speaking more than 50 years in public, but I didn't speak about American flags. It wasn't necessary. But if you want to do it today, I say Yashakoach. Do you know why? Because all the Rishoyim are trampling on the flag today. They're trying to desecrate America. You know why they're burning the flag? Not because they're good Goyim trying to improve America. It's because they are Rishon Gemurim. They are liberals who are trying to ruin everything. You have to know that the liberals are the leftists are, and they are ruining America. They are wicked people and wickedness has no calculations. That's why we do the opposite. They want to destroy the moral fabric of America. And so the least we can do is show that we appreciate the great gift of America. America is a very big bracha. It's like a very big birthday cake or a very big yunt of cake with lots of ice cream and lots of toppings. There is so much freedom, so many opportunities to make a living. And when a person is given such a big cake of happiness, he should appreciate what he's getting. The American flag is a sign of decency and compassion. That's what it is. Of course, it's only a symbol. But it's a symbol of what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is doing for us. America is a great gift to us from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And therefore, it's not America that we have to love. We have to love Hashem, who gave us America. And if HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives you Australia, then you have to love HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who is giving you Australia. And so all of us should be grateful to America. But it's not America. Who is America after all? This Goy or that Goy? America is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's gift to us. And we should appreciate for that gift by cooperating with America and preserving it as much as we can. But sof kol sof, we're eating that cake at the Gentiles' table. Let's say the mayor considers the Jewish community a friend of his. He doesn't, by the way. He doesn't care about you at all, only that he wants the Jewish vote. So he makes believe. But the mayor is giving gifts to the yeshivas. Other things he's giving us too. So what happens? You're not going to put up a big fight when the mayor is making a proposal to give gay rights to the degenerates, when the mayor wants to give them affirmative action status so that they should get the first chance to get positions in the schools and in government jobs. You keep quiet. After all, the mayor is your man. He bought the Jews for a little bit of money. And because of that, 
Just because we're eating that cake. So we have to know that we are losing our free will. We're abdicating our free will to America. It's a sin to be Americanized. You can be a good, loyal citizen, but don't sell yourself out and Americanize. Don't I remember when the families first came to America in the early 1900s? I was a little baby then, but I saw what was taking place. Jews came from small towns in Europe where they didn't have automobiles. Some Jews never saw an automobile in Derhem. And now he saw for the first time an automobile. It wasn't a real automobile. If you remember the old Fords, the Flivers, they were very far from being an automobile. But they were so remarkable that the Jews were overwhelmed. They came and saw electric lights. They never saw electric lights before. Ooh, street lights. I remember when I was a little baby. I was born in America, but I was in the company of European Jews. Baltimore was almost all European Jews then. The street lights in the stores were burning on and off, on and off. Ooh, what's this? America, a gavaldica place. America. They went crazy for America. Streets filled with stores. Besides everything else, you could buy everything here. Everything was available here. And most of all, you were a free man in this country. At least that's what they thought. They thought they were free. It was this freedom, this freedom to eat at the table of the Gentiles that enslaved their minds. Because when you sit down at somebody's house and he tells you things while you're eating, it goes down together with the food. In the beginning, your mind is saying, no, no, not at all, not those ideas, not the ideals of America and Tel Aviv, but your body is saying, yes, yes, and little by little, your mind readily acquiesces and agrees. That's what happened to many of the Jews. They stopped thinking like Jews because they were swallowing all the American ideals, baseball and Thanksgiving and equality along with the cake. The wealth of America so overwhelmed these people who came from the little towns in Europe. They sold out. They came from our agricultural countries, from the backward civilizations of Poland, Galicia, and Lithuania. There wasn't much to eat at the table of Eastern Europe. No freedom, no Parnassa, no equality. And so when they came here, they were so overwhelmed by the good cake of America that they collapsed. All their principles collapsed. They forgot everything that they ever learned. And they swallowed the ideals of America along with their newfound freedoms. And that's why we have to be on guard always. Of course, we're grateful to be sitting at the table of America. Absolutely. But just because of that, just because we're eating from their hands, we have to be extra vigilant and guard our minds always. We shouldn't be like animals who follow only the instinct, like the herd who follows the editorials of the newspapers or listens to the radio and the television. And what monkey sees, monkey does. That's the great danger of Shulchan Acherim. There's a certain price we pay by sitting at their table. We are becoming Mishubad, enslaved to their ideals. It can't be helped. We're eating their cake, but we're losing our independence of mind. We laugh at their jokes and we approve of their mannerism. Instead of Korach talking, the president is talking to us. The mayor and the newspapers are our Gentile neighbors are talking to us. And we're lapping it up because we're sitting at their table. And so the first step to reclaiming our freedom, our freedom to think in the ways of the Torah, our freedom to acquiring Torah attitudes, is to become aware of the danger of giving up our Bechira by means of taking.
We don't want to be like the Adas Korach, who gave up their minds. It means they gave up their Oilam Haba for some cake. Uverachta Bachayim. We want to retain our free will, all of it, and live only according to the dictates of what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants of us. And therefore, all of our lives, wherever we go, wherever we eat, and wherever we achieve happiness, we always remember that our minds, our ideals, and attitudes are sold out only to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Whatever good we get in this world, we remember always that the one who is providing for us is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We remind ourselves that everything we have is only from him. We are eating at his table, and it is only to him that we are sold out. Have a wonderful Shabbos.